Brattleboro 107.7 FM, your community radio station. The views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and guests, not the radio station. The Today, this is Indigo Radio. We're on the air every Sunday at noon, and we have a very special show today for Mother's Day. Um, we're going to be talking about early child care providers and um, we're joined in the studio by Kay, who's been an early child care provider for over 30 years, I believe. <laughs> 16. 16. Uh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> and this is Becca Polk. I'm a teacher in Springfield, Vermont, and also a graduate of the Spark Teacher Education Program here in Brattleboro. And my co-host today is... To be here talking about early childhood. I've been in the field um, as an advocate for about three years now. And so to, since today is Mother's Day, I just wanted to give everyone a little bit of history of Mother's Day. Um, contrary to the hallmark image of Mother's Day that we have now circulating in our society, it was actually started as a day to commemorate women's activism. In 1858, Anna Reeves Jarvis organized Mother's Day to um, like build more community activism in West Virginia. And then in 1870, Julia Ward Howe proclaimed Mother's Day as a day of protest against war. And so to all those strong mothers out there, um, and I think I would consider celebrating Mother's Day as any woman who cares for children yes. um, beyond just the idea of a family that we, is promoted in our society today. Um, and there's also a great um, organizing that's happening around racial justice today for Black Mama's bailout day. Vicki, I don't know if you yeah. could say more about that. So for the past week, racial justice groups around the country have been organizing around Black Mama's bailout day and raising money for the second year in a row to bail out as many black women from jail as possible. The effort is taking place in dozens of cities to call attention to the injustice of cash bail. Check them out at nomoremoneybail.org. And according to the National bail, Bailout we website, every day on average, an average of 700,000 people are condemned to local jails and separated from their families. A majority of them are simply there because they cannot afford to pay bail. The organizations involved in the national bailout are working to end money bail and in the meantime get as many people out of these cages and back to their families as possible. So this is a great thing. Um, you can find nomoremoneybail.org to donate to this national bailout. Um, and today we kind of jumped in and didn't really tell our listeners what we were going to be talking about explicitly. <laughs> Um, but we're looking at early childhood, child care in Vermont and beyond. And um, this past Friday, too, was Providers Appreciation Day, where we, like Mother's Day, took one official day to say thank you to our child care providers who work tirelessly, often without livable wages, to care for our children. Yeah, and I just want to give a shout out to my mother, who was a home-based child care provider for many years, and it was from her that I learned how to love and nurture every child as if they were my own. And our two guests on the show, Kay Curtis is in um, the studio with us, and Billy Slade will also hear from her 
They're both mothers and both providers, and we're really looking forward to talking with them. So I think let's go to a song break, and um, we're going to play from uh, Mr. Rogers, There Are Many Ways to Say I Love You. He might have been a big part of many people's childhood, so we'll go to that song right now. There are many ways to make pictures and letters and clouds. There are many ways to tell and show people you love them. There are many ways to say I love you. There are many ways to say I care about you. Many ways, many ways, many ways to say I love you. Just by being there when things are sad and scary Just by being there Being there Being there to say I love you Cleaning up a room can say I love you Hanging up a coat before you're asked to do it Drawing special pictures for the holidays and making plays you'll find many ways to say i love you you'll find many ways to understand what love is many ways many ways many ways to say i love you as you grow I trust that you are finding many more ways to show and tell people that you love them. Those are the most important things that you'll ever learn to do. Because loving people and animals and the world we all live in is the most important part of being alive. Welcome back. This is Indigo Radio. And that was Mr. Rogers. There are many ways to say I love you. We are giggling to ourselves here in the studio, as I hope all of the listeners were as well. (laughs) So um, just a couple news from Vermont that's connected to our show today. Um, Last, this past Friday in Vermont, our legislator made some significant steps According to the newspaper Seven Days, the Vermont legislator approved a pair of bills Friday that would raise the state's minimum wage to $15 per hour in 2024 and create a paid family leave policy for workers. Now, this is very significant because the paid family leave bill would increase payroll taxes for employers who would pay into a state fund that would compensate workers 80% of their normal salary during qualifying leave. Um, This is really a big deal as someone who is um, thinking in the future about having children. And I know even as a teacher, I only get 30 days maternity leave at this point. And so just thinking about all the other workers out there who want to care for their children, want to make sure that their children have the best care possible, but are so stressed about being able to make money for their children that it becomes an added stress onto families in the state. 
And, and Governor Scott has criticized both of these bills, and he'll soon face a decision about whether or not to veto them. Mm. And um, also, the <laughs> Federal Election Commission ruled on Thursday that candidates can now use campaign funds for childcare expenses. Um, so the ruling came after New York congressional candidate uh, Liuba Gretchen Shirley, who's running for New York's second district, requested that the FEC allow her to use campaign donations to pay for child care. And this is a big step for women because right now Congress is only 19 percent female. And um, we know that even if a family has two parents who are both working, often the child care falls on top of the women in addition to the work that they're already doing. Yeah, Shirley said that her child care provider is, quote, just as important as my campaign manager or my finance director. And she is one of only three women in the country running for office with a child age two or under. Wow. So, um, Vicki, I wanted to ask you, and Kay, please feel free to jump in at any point, um, just to give a broad picture of the conversations and the legislation and the work that's happening around early child care in Vermont um, for our listeners and me who only have a very little understanding about what's happening. Sure, yeah. Well, this is not just a women's issue because when our children receive loving and nurturing care, it's good for everyone. It's good for our world. But this is a woman's issue because historically and right now, the childcare system is held on the backs of women who are predominantly not making a livable wage. The average salary for a childcare provider in Vermont is only about 26,000. Often, or maybe always, as Kay pointed out, um, without benefits. So that's something like 10 to $11 per hour, which is less than Vermont's livable wage. And um, People also lose their benefits if they're promoted. We were talking a little bit about that earlier this morning. Um, Could you say more about that? Yeah, do you want to tell... You were telling me a story, Kay, about... Um, well, I, I was telling you a story about how people getting child care um, will get a raise at work, and all of a sudden the the subsidy system will not pay for their child care anymore and so therefore uh hopefully the the um, boost in wages paid for the child care plus a bonus but usually it doesn't and it costs people more money to get a raise at work than than it did before so there's a cliff yeah and, and it's important for people women in the workforce not to feel like um advancing in their profession or doing a better job is going to cost them money yeah and that's often right. how it happened in my program and actually I've heard I've talked to providers themselves who were up for a raise and decided not to take it because of just that because if they took the raise they would lose benefits that help them to pay for their own children's child care so mm -hmm. it, it feels like we're just keeping people in poverty the system is keeping people in poverty and we also know that more than 70% of Vermont children under the age of six have all available parents in the labor force meaning those children are likely to need some form of childcare. And childcare is incredibly difficult to find, access, and afford in Vermont. Um, we face a major shortage of programs statewide. Over 50% of infants and toddlers who are likely to need care don't have access to any regulated childcare programs. 
And for infants alone in Wyndham County, 73% of infants do not have access to any regulated programs. And so when you talk about regulated and licensure and all of these things, I don't know, Kay, if you could add a little bit about what that even looks like or what's that that's looked like historically and what's how the cha- what changes are being put into place right now? Mm-hmm. So um, child care is offered um, by uh, various groups of people working under different systems. Um, there, there is a, a category called license exempt in which there are a few um, requirements, very few requirements. That's often a grandma who's taking care of somebody's, um, their, their grandchild, and then, and then the state pays them a very little bit of money okay. um, to, to help with that. Um, then there's a registered program, which is six children in the home of the provider. Um, their uh, after-school children do not count in that ratio, so those programs can have um, more. If you have three children and you have six in your ho- that you're taking care of, you can have as many as nine children in the home at a time with one provider taking care of oh. them in a registered program. A licensed program, which is what I ran um, for... 15 years was um, a program where you doubled up and you hired someone else to work for you and then you were allowed 12 children at a time, so six times two. So um, I ran a program with with 12 open slots, which usually amounted to 15 different kids in those 12 Mm -hmm. slots, and then I had to hire people to come and work for me. So I did that for a long time and that was great. Then there's a center-based program where you, um, I, uh, that's run where you, you hire a lot of people and you have different classrooms and you split out the age groups. It does not happen in homes. It happens in, in licensed centers. Mm-hmm. So those are the... And part of the, um, I guess, the importance of being licensed and or registered is that parents can then access state subsidy or tuition assistance to pay for childcare. And they can only use that if they're at a licensed provider. Is that right? A licensed or registered provider. Licensed or registered, right. Um, And as it is, Vermont families with two young children spend on average over $20,000 a year for childcare, more than the cost of full-time in-state tuition at a Vermont state college. So it's not only <laughs> let's just let that sit in yeah. for a moment because <laughs> I mean financially it's it's a it's a problem for parents it's a problem for providers nobody seems to be making ends meet here and parents are making choices like should I keep my job that I need to make ends meet when nearly all of my paycheck goes to childcare um, which is kind of confusing because parents are paying so much yet providers are making so little mm-hmm. um, and and I do hear from from mothers, actually, that I'm thinking of in particular, who work full-time and then hand their entire paycheck over to childcare at the end of the week. And these providers, and I'm thinking of one actually in Brattleboro, um, are, are making minimum wage. Um, so it's a, very, it's a very complex system and it has very little public support. So it's hard for me to co- cohesively portray these struggles that are faced by children, parents, and childcare providers. But the last thing I want to mention is this idea of workforce development tied to kindergarten readiness. And already, when children are babies, toddlers, three- and four-year-olds, we're talking about testing, scores, ready for kindergarten, 
and skills for the workforce. We refer to our youngest children as investments. Mm -hmm. And we have to do that in order to advocate for state funding and prove that these kids and their parents can be productive members of the labor force. But when will we allow kids to be kids? When will they get to play and learn by the beat of their little drum in this big world that wants only to put them in boxes? That's why we're here talking with Billy and Kay. That's great. And I think um, we'll go to a song break now. This is Sweet Honey in the Rock, Motherless Child. And we'll, um, when we come back, we'll continue our conversation about early childhood um, and the ch early child care in Vermont. And um, we'll play an interview <clears throat> with Billy Slade. Stay tuned. This is Indigo Radio. Sometimes I feel like I'm a 
Scarborough's Community Radio 107.7, and today we're talking about early childhood in Vermont. We're about to play an interview with Billy Slade, who has been in the field of childcare for 40 years this September. She started as a home-based childcare provider in Milwaukee and has been mentoring childcare providers throughout her career, both in Milwaukee and here in Vermont. And she recently opened up her own program, Wonder in the Woods, which is a nature-based, play-based program for children under five. And we're about to hear from Billy now. I remember with snow and sledding a few months ago, and I, I was surprised by that, that at three she could recognize she was so familiar with the terrain that she knew this is a spot that we'd use for something very different in a different season. So, um, so for me, nature-based just means that you're you're out every single day, you're exploring the world around you, you're paying attention to the wildlife that you share the land with, and um, and I have families who really seem to respect and value that, which is, is important. Wonderful. That sounds great. I wish I would have had something like that when I was young. Yeah. <laughs> this mm-hmm. is why I spend so much time at this child care. <laughs> so as a child care provider, um, there's a lot happening in the state right now um, and across the country, and I'm wondering what you think is important for people to understand about early childhood. Well, that's a big question. I think I think probably if I had to pick one thing, it would be that early childhood, as we knew it, is in danger of extinction. I think that um, there's such a focus on moving to academics so early, um, the focus is on readiness, readiness all the time, and in doing that, we're missing the here and now. We're so busy getting four-year-olds ready to be kindergartners that we miss out on the magic of being four. And and I think that as early childhood educators, we are the ones who are going to turn that tide. I think we are the ones who are going to have to preserve childhood and, and help the rest of the world to see that this is a valuable time in their lives, too, that it's not just a you know, a holding pattern for being a kindergartner or a school-aged child. And, and in fact, it's the whole foundation of who they will be as they go. And, and so it feels really important to me that people recognize that, that children need to be children and play is the very core of that. Yeah. Um, so as early childhood ed- educators, too, I mean, there is also some struggle that comes along with that. And I know you've mentored a lot of providers in the Brattleboro area and beyond. I, I know that as well. But um, what do you what do you see as, as as a struggle for providers in in getting there and getting to have the kind of um, space that they want to create for children? I think um, most recently, a lot of my mentoring work has has centered around helping providers value themselves and recognizing that they really have good instincts. Um, there's more and more regulation in our state and in the country, and and sometimes that regulation is meaningful, and sometimes it can feel like busy work to a lot of these providers who are already overburdened with long days and low wages. And so, trying to help them recognize when there's a, a reason, you know, a, a logical reason behind a regulation, but also helping them to trust their own instincts about what's good for kids, and most of them do have good instincts. So walking that fine line between meeting all the standards and regulations and and still staying true to who you are as a provider is a really tricky thing. Mm -hmm. 
<clears throat> um, I'm a middle school teacher in Springfield, Vermont, and it seems mm-hmm. that a lot of, um, from what I've heard from Vicky and the work that's happening, a lot of the stuff, there's similar language being used about, um, as you said earlier, this readiness and preparing for academics. And mm-hmm. the, the term high quality as well is used, high quality care. And I'm wondering if you could talk about what the state means when they say that and then what you think that looks like. Oh, that's a really interesting question because sometimes those are two really different things. <laughs> um, so, so I think, and I don't, and I don't blame the state. I think that they're doing the best they can with the parameters that they set out for themselves. But I think high quality to um, to regulators and to the state in general has more to do with the number of stars you achieve, you know, through the um, step ahead recognition system or the number of degrees you have, or, you know, what the physical setup looks like. And indeed, you know, some of those things can be indicators of high quality, but they're not the end-all and be-all of it. And and I really caution parents to educate themselves about what high quality means, because, you know, if you have nothing else to go on as a parent looking for child care, that might be your only um, indicator is that, oh, how many stars are they? Okay, this is a good program for my child. And, and I can tell you, Vicki knows this, that, that there are five-star programs that, that are not high quality from my perspective, and there are one-star programs or programs that aren't even participating in STARS that are high quality. So it's not the only indicator is what I want to emphasize. Um, for me, high quality has more to do with the relationships. It has to do with the relationships between the children and the caregivers, between the children and the other children, between the caregivers and the families. It's, it's all about the relationship and the trust and the connections that are happening that, um, that really constitute high quality when, when I think of it. Great. Thank you. And I, I know you've touched on this a little bit, but if, you, if there's anything else you want to say about the challenges today of providing affordable quality child care to all of our children, we'd love to hear what you, what you think about that. Well, it's really, it's really a conundrum because, um, you know, I think about my own situation. I have this, this high-quality program that people really value, and, and unfortunately, the children who would benefit most from this don't have access to it. Mm-hmm. And, and in my case, it's not a, a financial affordability situation because I do have a sliding fee scale, and I like the idea of having a diverse group here. I think that's important. Um, but they don't have transportation, and I'm, you know, I'm out in the woods, and mm-hmm. so there's no bus that brings them across the covered bridge and to the, you know, to the little Wonder in the Woods program. And so those kids who live in a fourth-floor apartment and don't get much green space or exposure to nature, that that is an option for them to get here, and that makes me really sad because those are the kids who would most benefit from this. So, so the children who come are people whose parents have a car or some way of getting here each day, and, uh, and it almost feels like it's perpetuating this, you know, the, the accessibility piece is a, is a real um, puzzler for me because I would love for more children who really need this program to be able to be here, and it's difficult to do that when, when they don't have transportation. Um, like I said, I have a sliding fee scale, so the affordability piece of it 
isn't as much of a factor if they could actually physically get here. And and some of it is education, like parents who haven't had those nature experiences themselves might not understand the value of them. And so that's that's part of my job as a as a child care provider is to also do parent education. And again, if I don't have access to those parents who who need to know why this is important, um, it's difficult to persuade them that that this is important for their child. Yeah, and I think um, just to end, for people who are not involved in early childhood specifically at this moment, how can we support um, more continued play for four-year-olds and not the push for rigor in academics? I think talking about it as often as you can. I mean, I'm I'm a real bore at parties and things because <laughs> my soapbox is that I talk often about how we're so focused on readiness that we're missing we're missing the here and now. And I I liken it to a, a story that one of my mentors told. Dev Boss used to say, "Only to children do we do this kind of disservice where we um, we so focus on what's to come that we've missed what is right now." Like she said. If you uh, if you went to a 40-year-old and took a sledgehammer and broke their knees so they would be ready to use a walker when they were 80, that wouldn't happen. We wouldn't do that to adults. And yet and yet to children, we do this over and over again. We squelch down their natural um, inclinations to, you know, revel in play and to learn through play because it's essential, essentially that's the very best learning is through something they're very engaged in, which is play. And um, and we miss out. We just totally miss out. So it's, you know, older older teachers, you know, teachers who are working with older age groups, trying to find ways to incorporate play into your classroom, whether it's kindergarten, first grade, middle school, whatever. I think that, that we never stop playing if we're given the opportunity. And so um, for, for, for you to create pockets of play, even for older children, I think can be a real gift. And I think you find that kids are very engaged when they when they have those opportunities, um, especially in this day and age when they haven't had enough time to play as young children. Pockets of play. I love it. Thank you so much, Billy. I, As you know, I, I wish I was a three-year-old at Wonder in the Woods every day. <laughs> and, when, and when you come here, you are, so that's awesome. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Uh, you have anything else? So we're back at Indigo Radio on WVW LP Brattleboro 107.7 FM, Brattleboro's community radio station. And we just wanted to um, share a few thoughts commenting on uh, Billy's interview. Um, and so I don't know, Kay, if there's anything that came up for you as you were listening um, and yeah, I thought Billy was was spot on with all of her comments about uh, play being important for children. I think we um, err in that we think if we can't measure something that it's that that it's not important, and it's really difficult to measure um, creativity. It's 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 uh, difficult to reg- uh, measure whether children are making friends. I've never seen. Um, one of those little forms say, did the child make two friends or three friends? You know, like people just don't measure those things. Mm-hmm. They measure whether a, a kid knows their colors or or whether you've gone to uh, take certain courses But as a teacher, but they do not measure whether kids feel empowered and confident about who they are in a community of learners. And they don't measure whether 
kids are excited and in love with learning about the things that they care about. And those are the things that I cared about when I was teaching children during that um, 16 years with, I guess, over 250 different children over those years. Um, and I think that the important way to know how to do that is to model that for them. Love what you're doing, love your profession, and, um, and to be excited and interested in learning ourselves as teachers. And that's, I think, the best way to, to become a great teacher is to have exciting lives where learning is important for you. And then when the children hear your excitement over the, the earthworms in the backyard, they also become excited about earthworms. And then you can start a conversation mm about that yeah absolutely and i you know billy billy spoke about relationships and i'm just as i'm listening to uk i'm thinking of just an hour earlier when we were in amy's bakery and we ran into two um young women who approached you and, and gave you a hug and it turns out they were part of your child care program years and years ago and talk about relationships that really yeah. last a lifetime they both towered over me by the way <laughs> 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 and the other thing that I was thinking about <clears throat> as I was listening to Billy is yesterday we were, um, the Spark Teacher Education Program had their uh, presentations, their final exhibitions and graduation. And one of the presentations was about how do we teach high schoolers how to make connections? Mm -hmm. How do we teach them to critically think and question their world? And I'm thinking about four-year-olds naturally do that. When I hang out with my four-year-old friend that I have in town, he, he's constantly questioning. He's constantly. He, mm -hmm. I could make so many friends just walking around Brattleboro with him because um, he wants to talk to everyone. And every person who's a working person, he wants to find out what they're doing and why they're doing it and how they're doing it and what they think about their work. And he's constantly asking questions and um, how important that is. Making connections. In fact, Harvard came out. Harvard Center for the Developing Child came out with a study last year, that last April, that said, um, ages zero to five children are making over one million neural connections per second. <laughs> Can you believe that? And so then we put four-year-olds into a box uh, that's created by public education um, around the testing and, as you said, measuring what we can actually measure. And um, I think about this story of a four-year-old in Putney who got on the bus one day and said, there's no, I'm never going to graduate high school. I'm never going to make it through this. At four years old, he already knew how the school perceived him and how um, that he was going to be pushed out mm -hmm. of schooling, the traditional schooling. And so what kind of... Um, like lives are we setting up our young people for yeah we're giving people we're giving small children the message already before they age, before they've entered kindergarten that that they've failed mm. they've failed to fit in the box that we've created that is the box that gets them into yale and harvard yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's so ridiculous and so we'll go to a song break this is the Something Beautiful by Cat Wright and Chris Dorman, or Mr. Chris, and it's the, I believe it's the anthem for Let Us Grow Kids. Anthem or for Kids. Anthem yes. for Kids. Um. 
And these are local musicians out of Burlington, or I think at least Kat is out of Burlington. So we'll hear something beautiful before we dive deep with Kay Curtis. Beautiful, I hear something beautiful. To give it life, to help it grow. To give it life, to help it grow. I hear something beautiful. I hear something beautiful. Open up my heart, open up my mind to something beautiful. Open up my heart, open up my mind to help it grow. I hear something beautiful. I hear something beautiful. To give it life, to help it grow. To give it life, to help it grow. I hear something beautiful. WVEW is underwritten in part by Everyone's Books. Located in downtown Brattleboro at 25 Elliott Street, Everyone's Books is a family-owned, independent bookstore that has been serving the community for over 30 years. They specialize in books about social change, the environment, politics, and travel, and offer a huge range of children's books. You can reach them by phone at 802-254-8160 or online via their website at everyonesbks.com. WVEW thanks everyone's books for their support of this station. Welcome back. You're listening to Indigo Radio on 107.7 FM, Brattleboro's community radio station. We're so lucky to have been joined by two amazing women who have been child care providers, our child care providers, and uh, mothers as well. And we just heard an interview from Billy Slade. And in the studio, we have Kay Curtis. Thanks so much for being here with us. Thank you. Um, I was wondering, uh, Kay, if you could just tell us a little bit about your work, your 16 years work in the field of early child care. Right. I I arrived in Brattleboro at age 48. Mm -hmm. And I thought I was going to continue being an artist in the community as I had been in California before. And I got here, and it didn't look like people liked buying art quite as much as they did in California. So I got nervous, and I got a job at CNS, and the lady next to me had a very pregnant belly. And I said, what's going to happen to that baby that's been in the office each day? And she said, well, I'm going to put it in child care. I said, how much are you going to pay the child care provider? I think at the time it was $2.75 an hour. 
that she was going to pay wow. for childcare. And I did the math on $3 times six kids, and I said, well, I could make more money if I stay at home. Well, I forgot to sort of factor in the fact that I'd be providing my home as the space for the, the mm -hmm. children. Um, but it still was wonderful, and I got to stay at home and be at home for when my my 11-year-old walked home from school each day. Um, and that's how I got in the field, and so Happy Hands was begun. It went from a six-kid program to a licensed program with, with the 12 kids, and um, I did that until I retired about um, two and a half years ago. Now I just go over there and work occasionally. I gave it to my daughter, who loved having it, and so she runs Happy Hands now. And I'm currently spending my time at the Brattleboro Retreat, running a program called The Welcoming Place, in which we take care of the children of people in the HUB program, which are the people who are, who are in recovery from um, opioid addiction. It's a methadone, it's a, I'm sorry, it's a Suboxone program. And um, that, that is filling my life up with with my commitment to children and families these days. So that's what I'm currently doing. Yeah, that's great. And so what do you think is important in the conversation that's happening right now around early childhood in Vermont? What do you think is important for people to be thinking about and know about? Well, I, I guess I could back up a little here and say that um, there were five years in which early educators in Vermont were energized and very, very happy because we were in the pursuit of unionizing. And the reason we wanted to do that was so that when decisions got made about how licensing requirements would be made or how, how systems would be created for children in childcare programs, we would have a very strong voice in the conversation. Mm -hmm. And we spent five years in that pursuit uh, many of us, it ended about two and a half years ago, and, and we lost, and it was a very sad moment for people. And since then, I think a number of providers have grabbed the ball and run with it, and, and they're starting to take more um, action and becoming more, um, having a larger voice in, in their community. Um, not the voice we would have had. We would have had some political power with the union, mm -hmm. but they are there. You know, we, we hit bottom after that, and so I'm watching these, the networks in the area become stronger and start um, organizing themselves around having a voice in decisions. I think it's important for the people who do the work to have a voice. They're the people who are there 11 hours a day with little bitty kids and trying to figure out you know, how you keep everybody safe and how, uh, how you listen to the little kids even though you're exhausted, <laughs> mm -hmm. that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And it takes something. And I just, I'm just always so appreciative of the women who choose this for a profession because they're not doing it for the money. Mm -hmm. They're doing it because they love kids. Yep. And what an opportunity it would have been to have uh, a strong union in place to, to provide the, that voice in the Vermont legislature. And, you know, I, I heard from you that the union drive only lost by 20 vo votes. Yes, unfortunately, what, 20 votes. <laughs> what happened in your view? Why 
why was it not successful in that sense? Well, I think what we did win in the legislature, it took five years to win in the legislature, but we did win in the legislature, and that was like a huge victory, and there was this moment in time when we went, oh, we've been working five years, and we got there. But then when they took the vote, um, there was a massive drive of robocalls right before uh, the, the ballots got sent to people, and the robocalls instructed people, basically lied to people about what the union would do. And people got scared, so they either didn't vote or they voted against us. And I think that was part of the reason. And part of the reason is, I guess, Vermont wasn't ready yet. So uh, maybe it'll come around again. <laughs> and the robocalls were not just uh, a drive from inside Vermont. No. It's kind of a larger push against unions in general. That's correct. That's correct. They were financed from out-of-state funds. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. And so I guess backing up a little bit, the typical day of a child care provider, mm -hmm. I mean, the, if you could talk a little bit more about the condi conditions that led you all to start organizing to want to have a union. Right. Okay. So um, what you do as a child care provider is you get up very, very early in the morning. When you first start, before you've got a, a reputation, you work an 11-hour day because some people go to work at 6 o'clock in the morning and some people get home at 6 o'clock. You know, so you, you try to you try to get your slots filled because so, if the slots aren't filled, you're losing money. Yeah. Um, and you get up very early to prepare the space for the kids. You want to make sure you're following all the licensing requirements, and there are many. Um, and in my case, towards the end, I had another person who would be coming in. That person would be coming in. If you're sick, you work anyway. There's no subs to come in and work for you. Mm. If there's snow in the driveway, you shovel the snow. If the toilet's not working, you, you fix the toilet. You know, mm. like you're in charge of all of it, plus the paperwork and the payroll and all that stuff. And then when the kids arrive, of course, it's fabulous, you mm. know, because they come in through the door and they're so excited to see you and they're so happy. And you get to watch each little kid and say, oh, this one could benefit from more friends, and this one could benefit, let's read to this one, this one likes books, this one likes blocks. So the reason it was hard was because of the 11-hour day. Um, yeah. Weekends were not free. Weekends were filling out the required paperwork uh, to be part of the food program, um, purchasing the groceries to prepare food for kids, um, cleaning the school on the weekend so that it would meet ins the inspection of the licensors when they came by. Um, and just generally, you know, just everything, <laughs> you know, that you had to do in order to be ready again on Monday. Mm -hmm. And I can remember um, you couldn't really take vacations unless you had somebody who could come in who knew all the kids. I mean, I, I remember they used to say, oh, just take a vacation. And I'd go, yeah, but what's going to happen when this little child needs you to fall asleep at nap time? Or this little kid has, can't have peanuts, like no peanuts. You know, there were so many details that you couldn't really replace yourself easily. Mm -hmm. I, I learned how to do it over time, but I 
did the work for 16 years. And after the first 10 years, I was willing to leave for part of the day, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and then the money. The money was terrible. I mean, I am now working in order to try to generate some retirement money um, out of, out of, away from my own program because it's very difficult to put that together when you're, when you're working with, uh, un with a little bit of money that they provide for child care providers. Yeah. So you're working in retirement to make money for retirement. Yes. <laughs> I went, oh, forgot that part. I was too busy taking care of the children. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and so I'm imagining you with six kids in your home. What if you have to go to the bathroom? Right. And that's what I kept asking Reva Murphy, the commissioner, the deputy commissioner for children and families. I said, what do we do? I don't see here anywhere in the regs where it says, what if you need to pee, you know? <laughs> and it was tricky because really there was no, there was nothing that was written in there. It was required that you have your eyes on all six children at all times. Um, even when they were sleeping, it was required that you check in with them because of the fear of SIDS and all that. So, you know, really, that's probably part of the reason why I expanded to a 12-kid um, a program so there would be one other person so that I could pee or <laughs> eat lunch. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> but you got very good at doing things for yourself very quickly. And that's most providers are very caring people who are not so great at taking care of themselves. <laughs> So. And you're talking about a setting that is uh, a child's home away from home. It seems That's like right. an intimate setting. It seems like uh, the uh, time and energy it takes to uh, build relationships with both the children and the families, as right. Billy mentioned, as being important. Um, and just, I just imagine like um, how many child care providers are out of their homes right now in Vermont and the shift that's happening right now. I don't know if you could talk a little bit more about that, either of you. Like you mentioned at the beginning of the show, the shift to more like standardization of mm. child care and um, what I, I guess what we're going to lose uh, as we're talking about high quality care. And you said that, yeah, there's early childhood voices, care providers' voices that are part of this, but they're not entirely in charge of what happens? Right. Well, the, the licensing regs are very onerous if you're, if you're, if you're, if you're a low-income person, if you're a single mom. It's very difficult to, to keep all those little ducks in a row. And now the, the educational requirements are being raised because they equate that with high quality. Mm. And so therefore, some of the people who've been doing this work for 20 or 30 years are now being told, oh, well, w but, but you have to go back to school now, or you have to take a GED test now that you're 65 years old and you've been doing this work your whole life successfully. However, now we've decided as the experts in the field that, that we would like you to 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 pass these tests in order to do it. So a lot of the home providers are becoming discouraged. Um, and they are choosing to close or they're choosing to go. Oh, another thing you can do is choose to not be regulated anymore. Mm. And you take a couple of kids in your home and you, you, you um, bypass all the regulations, which I'm sure the state is not interested in promoting that 
concept. So um, yeah, so it's discouraging for home providers these days. The other big p piece that I haven't mentioned today yet is that when they put public preschool in place, they provided a way where the school system could take all the three, four, and five-year-olds that were the older kids in the home programs that provided the leadership for the younger kids. Mm -hmm. Like, I can't imagine my program without the four and five-year-olds because they were the leaders. We used to call them the top dogs. And they would help out with the little kids. And that was how I built community. And to build community with, with one, two, and three little three-year-olds that's harder mm. to build community but if they could look up to the five-year-olds who were almost going to go to kindergarten there was such a um it was such a way that they could honor those older kids and there was such it was had such a great influence on the older kids to be looked up to by the little kids yeah. and now they're talking about putting all those three four and five-year-olds into the public school system in the pre-K pre classrooms. Um, in the beginning, when they had the idea, they said, oh no, they won't be going to, into the public school systems, but slowly all of Oak Grove now has one. Slowly all the schools, if they have not enough kids to fill their classrooms, they're opening these programs. And so the home programs are losing those older kids um, because it's free. It's free to go to the public school system and do the pre-K. But if you're a home provider and you don't have a teaching license, you can't teach that in your home. Mm -hmm. You can't qualify for yeah. pre-K. And I remember last year, and correct me if I'm wrong, but Governor Scott said, yes, we'll fund pre-K, but it will come out of the already um, low education budget mm -hmm. and so uh, out of the public schools. And so instead of adding additional money, Mm -hmm. to support programming, mm -hmm. it's coming out of what already exists. Yes. And so it's kind of, I feel like he's extremely good at pitting people against one another, and that kind of was a what has happened. And um, so I just, it's great to have preschool uh, free and covered for everyone. And right. at the same time, what is going to, what are we going to be losing from that? Well, in are we putting children in classrooms with desks that are three mm. who've just barely been potty trained, you know, who are still trying to learn how to make friends? Who, um, who are still kids who want to play, and that's how they that's learn. Right. Yeah. You need to as be in the backyard mixing up mud. Yep. <laughs> just as Billy said. Yep. Yep. So I don't know, Kay, if there's anything you want to add. We have to end here, but if there's any last words that you want to share. I just want to say happy Mother's Day <laughs> to all the mothers out there who work so hard, taking great care of their kids. All the mothers. All the mothers, all the strong mothers. And to you, Kay, and Billy, two mothers who we were very lucky to have on today. And to our own mothers, right? Yes. Happy Mother's right. Day. Happy Mother's Day. <laughs> Um, I just wanted to mention a couple things that are happening. Uh, this coming Saturday, actually May 19th, from 12 to 2 at the State House Lawn in Montpelier, there's going to be a rally for Vermont Public Schools. And this is in response to massive cuts in programming that our kids depend on, that are, the, are slashing about 2,000 teaching positions in the state of Vermont for next year. And so we've been watching our other 
teachers in Arizona, Colorado, Oklahoma, Kentucky, and West Virginia take a stand. And it's time for us in Vermont to take a stand as well to um, stand with early childcare providers as well as public school teachers. Um, and Brattleboro Solidarity is hosting, I mean, I think it's really important to mention that standing up for our children in Vermont also means standing up for children all around the world. And right now, um, kids who are living in Gaza, in Palestine, um, about two million people, over half of them are children living in Gaza right now, are under siege. And so we're having a rally and vigil on Monday, May 14th at Pliny Park in Brattleboro from 5 to 7. We hope that you can join us. This is commemorating 70 years of Nakba or the catastrophe when 750,000 Palestinians were forcibly removed from their homes. Today, the number of Palestinian refugees are exceeding 8 million worldwide. So that's Monday. Tuesday, there's going to be a rally in Northampton at 5.30. And Friday, we will be having a film showing of The Wanted 18, which is a lovely movie uh, talking about the um, pa the Palestinians' resistance to um, and wanting to be able to produce their own milk. So that will be at the co-op at from six to eight on Friday, May eighteenth. Lots happening. Thank you all so much for the show, and we're gonna go. We're gonna finish our show uh, with the rest of the song of something beautiful, an anthem for kids. I hear something beautiful I hear something beautiful Open up my heart, open up my mind to something beautiful Open up my heart, open up my mind to help it grow One step along on our journey One step along on our journey One step along on our journey Beneath the sun First step a child takes One step Then two and three and then they're on their way One step Towards a life that will be all their own And we can help them build a home One step As community we will rise One step With the hope that we can hold on high One step The simple beauty of a child We all have a role to play We've got a life the way Take care of the kids Oh